1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey, and today we are looking at the final tranche of Champions League round of 16 first leg matches. Joining me to do so is a man who would never wear a weird jacket with a massive Man City crest on the back while wearing sweatpants, and who is not swearing at me on the camera right now, Taylor Rockwell!
2: (laughs) Not anymore, I'm not. Um, I wouldn't. I will be honest with you and say I would not. I would also... I'm going to assume that what, what Pep did was like see that jacket, think like, oh, it looks really, really nice. And then just unfortunately for him not check the back. I'm sure it wasn't at all a mandated thing because they want to sell those in the in the uh, Man City store.
1: I'm sure. But it was it wasn't just the look of the jacket that bothered me. It was the pairing it with the sweatpants. He had the look of a man who had forgotten to take out the trash cans at 11 p.m. and threw on anything he had just to go out to the uh, to the curb. That was what I was getting from that vibe.
2: There's there's a very this is a very esoteric reference. There's an old like Charlie Sheen movie when he I think the entire thing is like he's in a he's like in a car and he's a getaway driver. It might be called The Getaway. The only reason why I remember it is because even as a child he was wearing a like blue button up and black sweatpants and I remember even then being like that's not a thing you're supposed to do. That doesn't look normal. You're a weird character. And little did I know how right I would be in terms of the weirdness. So I agree with you, Ryan. Sweatpants with a a formal jacket seems odd.
1: Well, Pep does have tiger blood, so maybe it was a trippy. <laughs> well, joining Taylor and I is a man who would never become the youngest ever Englishman to score in the UEFA Champions League, and then declare for <laughs> Germany a matter of minutes later. Okay. It's not Jamal Musiala; it's Joe
3: Lowry. Hello, Ryan. I like my role, first of all, as the the sort of lurker in the background while you and Taylor get things settled up front, and then I can just come in, and usually my intro that you give me is more complimentary than Taylor's, so... I feel like it works out for me for a number of different reasons.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Um, I mean, would you like to wade in on Pep's wardrobe? I, I'm, I'm opening the floor for you, Joe. <laughs> I,
3: I mean, you guys have covered it. Taylor, as the childhood fashionista that he was, I think really you know laid mm-hmm. down the law on that one. I don't have anything else to add.
1: How about any sort of uh, German national team players who played for England's youth ranks <laughs> and who sort of uh, betrayed their uh, soccer roots at any point in the last few days? Anything on that?
3: I think, Ryan, this is better served as an opportunity for you to vent because it seems like you might have a little bit of pent up aggression maybe in there somewhere about this whole Musiala situation. So if you want to just take a second, this can be therapeutic for you if you'd like it to be.
1: Deep (sighs) (laughs) breath. Yeah, I think I've said enough about the whole situation. He was born in Germany. Let's move on. Ryan,
2: I can give you a silver lining if you want. Go on. This is me, again, the grasping at straws that you know I love to do. Like, I remember I was trying to write an article when I was still with Paste, like Paste Magazine, about... uh like players who could have played for England, like, uh, Simone Perotta, who won the World Cup with Italy, I think was born in England and like he didn't even know that. Like they put a statue of him up <laughs> in whatever small town he's from and he was like, Oh, that's nice. How do you not but know I remember the list being, I, I think it was like because he moved when he was so young, <laughs> like he just wasn't aware. I don't know how the people of the town knew. Um, but I remember it being a very small list and it was a lot of names that I didn't know. It feels like increasingly there are lots of players choosing to play for other countries or eligible for other countries. Which is just to say that I feel like there wasn't always a lot of youth development coming through England. Maybe there's more of it now? Maybe? Maybe. Is that grasping at straws?
1: Maybe he was from Hartlepool. You know, we, we know they don't leave the town very much, as we've established <laughs> before we started recording. That's, With their monkey hanging is ways. Oh, boy.
2: Oh, that, that, I, we need to do like a four-part story of that, which really we don't. It's a 30-second anecdote, <laughs> but still, it blew my mind.
1: Listener, have a little look at a Hartlepool Monkey Hanging if you have the time and inclination. In the meantime, why don't we talk about the Champions League? Why don't we start off with a trip to Bucharest, definitely not Budapest. Uh, two and a half thousand kilometres from the Wanda Nara Stadium. I think they call it these days Atleti against Chelsea. Chelsea coming away 1-0 winners in this one. Atleti have never progressed from a European tie, having lost 1-0 in the first home leg. Uh... Thomas Tuchel, pretty serious about this competition, is he not, Tezo? He really is, and uh, I think it's it's a thing that like.
2: Because he is seen as kind of unpopular, or kind of prickly or very literal, I think it, there's this like, OK, but we know there's a drawback here. We're waiting for the other shoe to, to drop. And it still hasn't. Instead, it's just been him getting results, making Chelsea look like a well-oiled, well-oiled machine, albeit a well-oiled machine without their most fundamental part in the form of Christian Pulisic. <laughs> but that aside, uh, it, he seems to have gotten the team to buy in. They all seem to be on the same page. Even in this game, I think there were lots of little adjustments and tactical changes he needed to make and did. And the players executed
1: well, who is their most fundamental part, though? Because I could point to a lot of players here. Obviously, Oli Giroud getting the goal in spectacular fashion, but, uh, Jorginho and Kovacic sort of hold, holding in front of the defence very impressively. Mason Mount, who never seems to stop running. I'm very impressed with him in this game. Mm-hmm. Even some of the back line. Uh, had right, a very yeah. good game in this one. So who, who is the, who is the, uh, the key man if it's not our friend Chris?
2: The one that like we've talked a little bit about on this show before, about his involvement or alleged involvement with Frank Lampard and Frank Lampard's dismissal, is Rudiger. And I thought Antonio Rudiger had a very strong game. And I thought it was interesting that we can talk more about the tactics now or later. Uh, but I thought it was interesting that he would sort of stay back when they were initially building. And then once they had sustained possession, you'd see Rudiger start to drift into more attacking positions and get involved both physically and technically. And I thought he did a lot of things on both sides of the ball. So I thought he had a very strong game uh, but that said he didn't score an overhead kick so I might give the advantage to
1: Giroud. <laughs> well Rudiger uh, alleged to be one of the ringleaders to have caused uh, Frank Lampard's demise at Chelsea I say alleged for legal reasons but hey uh-huh. we'll, uh, we'll, we'll move on quickly from that Joe um I contend that a Frank Lampard Chelsea would not have been able to do this would not have had the control to be able to uh, get a 1-0 win over Atleti in these circumstances do you agree <sighs>
3: It's tough, right? Because we'll never get this exact circumstance. We'll never get this exact game. I do think there's a reality where Chelsea draw, nil-nil, and they don't get that goal. And we're talking about Thomas Tuchel in a different way right now. So I think we have a tendency, not just you, Ryan, not just you, Taylor, not just me. We have a tendency to look at things too strongly based off of the result. Because ultimately, soccer is about the result, yes. Yes. But sometimes it is a little bit random. And I'm not saying that Chelsea weren't the better team in this game. I think they were. They did a lot of things really well. But they get one goal that was kind of against the run of play, not in terms of of Chelsea kind of getting one back after after Adleti were dominating, but they get a goal in transition when all of the game had been about possession versus defense, possession versus mm-hmm. defense. They get a goal not in that pattern. They get a goal against the run of play in that way. And if that doesn't happen, if Giroud doesn't score that overhead kick, this game is different. And maybe we're talking about, well, is Tuchel the right man for the job? Because we tend to be reactionary. I think Tuchel is a better manager than Frank Lampard. Don't get me wrong. And so for that reason, I think Tuchel's Chelsea team is better suited to beat Atletico Madrid and Diego Simeone. But man, it's hard to make that binary choice between Frank Lampard and Tuchel, even in these different circumstances.
2: J- Joe, I think that's, uh, that's a really, that's a really well thought out and like good, uh call for common sense uh no frank lampard loses this game right
1: <laughs> i think yeah i think i i i err on the side of tete here because i just see a chelsea taking the lead in this game if they're under frank lampard and not holding on to that lead not being composed enough not having the control uh to once you get in front to stay to stay in front does that make sense
2: yeah i also think that them getting in front would have been an issue as well cuz i think frank lampard was All about the attack and maybe less so the defense. And I think that would have been... Joe, you're correct that this is a lot of speculation. We'll never know for sure. My speculation is that he would have gone even more attacking and tried to sort of overload with the attacking options. But that tends to be what Atleti want you to do. And when you do that, it leaves tons of space... Let's say they are able to counterattack and get that goal. Now you're going to be even more focused on trying to get it, and that's how it works, is I'd let it get that first goal, and then they get the second when you get overextended. And I think Tuchel, uh, to his credit, always did a really good job of making sure no matter how many they had committed forward, Andreas Christensen stayed back and central. And while that's normal for a center back, it was really interesting that even when... Uh, Aspilaqueta would go forward or Rudiger would go forward. Christensen would always adjust where he was to make sure that he was in the exact position he needed to be for that kind of long direct ball for Suarez to try to trigger a counterattack. And that's just one of a few different examples. But I thought Tuchel managed this game really, really well, especially for how frustrating Atleti tried to make it.
1: Yeah, totally agreed. Let's talk about Atleti then, because... We were promised. Uh, we weren't promised. I mean, I was hoping yeah. <laughs> for a, a more attacking star from Simeone, something we might have seen in the Liga, the, 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 the you know the Liga's top team at the moment. It's almost as if they went back to the drawing board of the old plan and it didn't quite work out for this game. Um, obviously, it, well, they, they were a little... I'll dare to say they were a little dull in their approach. It was a 4-4-2, but it was essentially a 6-3-1 with Luis Suarez up on his lonesome on the top. Taylor, I know you had some excited things to say about the uh, 6-3-1 against Chelsea's yeah. attacking four, uh, 3-4-3. Have at it, brother.
2: Sure. So I think, I will, I will own that I think my preview, I was so, it's cause I have not watched as much Atleti until I did that preview and seeing them in the constant 3142. I was like, Oh, here we go. They figured out they're going to do something different. There was the nagging suspicion in the back of my head that in a European game, he would go much more defensive. And I think there are reasons for that aside from what's familiar. I think you're right, Ryan, that they kind of reverted back to the form, but I think there are other reasons for that. So here's my interpretation on, on what I think happened. I think you're absolutely right that fatigue was a big part of this. Liddy's Form has not been so strong in the last month or so, and I think part of that is just playing the the number of games they have, the number of different competitions. It's also, I didn't really know this until I heard it mentioned on a different podcast, they have been ravaged by COVID. Uh, Thomas Lamar, Hector Herrera, jo- uh, Joao Felix, Yana Carrasco, Mario Amoroso, Renan Lodi, Sima Versalco, Luis Suarez, Lucas Herrera, Diego Costa, Santiago Arias, both of them now gone, and Diego Simeone have all had COVID. And I think this game was maybe them seeing who they have that maybe some players aren't back to full fitness and decided we're just going to go all out defense here we're going to frustrate look to play on the counter and i think if you look at the mistakes they did make even the goal they're individual errors that i think result from fatigue once you lose that mental sharpness you start to make mistakes and i think this entire system was built to prevent individual mistakes from punishing them i think if they were a bit more expansive and open they probably lose this game maybe two or three now
1: yeah i mean uh they were without their first choice wing backs. I think there's a lot of players out here, and as you mm-hmm. say, COVID uh, has has ravaged this team, and fatigue is certainly an issue. But Joe, I mean, even with that, it feels like they didn't create much, and there just wasn't as much ambition as I would have hoped for from an Atleti team.
3: It's a great observation, Ryan, because of how Atleti were defending. Right in that six-three-one that you just talked about, they had their back five. They still they still kind of started in that back five shape or, or back three shape with two wing backs. That Taylor you talked about in your preview. Last week, they still started in that same shape, but then they brought back Correa to play as the the outside right defender of the back five, then becoming a back six with Correa joining up. So it was Llorente, who was the right wing back originally, then mm. becoming the next guy inside. And so Correa mm. dropping back formed that defensive line. And then it was Koke, Saul and Jao Felix as that midfield three and then Luis Suarez up top. And Atletico Madrid, because they defended so deep, deeper than any team we've seen in the Champions League, deeper than any team maybe outside of Atalanta, which we'll talk about later as that game progressed in the second half, Atletico Madrid defended so low in their own box, around their own box, with so many players, that they had not only so far to go to get into the attacking half, not even into Chelsea's box, into the attacking half, they had so much distance to cover. And then they had so few attacking players ready to go because they had eight or nine guys defending almost all the time. And then Suarez as that sort of outlet, there were big gaps. There were big problems for Atletico Madrid to be able to break out. They almost, they almost hurt themselves because of how aggressively they defended. They hurt their attacking ability. And then Chelsea's counter-pressing I thought was really good. They had really great counterpressing moments in this game. Mason Mount picked up a yellow card in the first half for a tactical foul. He was going to mix miss the next game, all part of the game plan. I think genuinely from Thomas Tuchel, it's worth it. You need to stop those counterattacks. Same thing with Jorginho. So they had, Chelsea came in with this idea of we're going to smother them in the attack. They executed that, but they were extremely, extremely helped by Atletico Madrid's low defensive block that prevented themselves from getting out on the break.
2: Yeah, I, I would double down on what Joe said and I would add that for people who maybe like myself coming into this knew that Suarez was having a very strong season with scoring a bunch of goals, felt like this rejuvenated player. It seemed like this could be his opportunity to shine, to show like, yeah, see that, see Barcelona, I can still score a million goals. What I hadn't really thought about is why he had looked so much better. And part of that is that they have been more proactive. They have been further up the pitch. So Joe, to your point, he's not having to run 70 yards with the ball at his feet because that's not what he's going to do anymore. He's still that proven goal scorer. He's still a, a veteran competitor who wants to win, who's going to be ruthless in front of the goal and make his teammates better. But that's when he's in front of goal, when he's 60 yards away from the goal back to it, that's not his strongest skill set. And you're not going to be able to transition as much through him, but you can't have him drop in and play that right wing back like you do with Correa. You really don't want him dropping in and doing all the defensive running like you have with Jao Felix, but you have to play him. And so it, it becomes this conundrum that I think Joe is dead on. It really... While you have to play him and he is your most potent attacking threat, your most consistent attacking threat, he's also the one who is maybe not least positioned, but not going to be as helpful in terms of hitting on the break with a lot of pace and a lot of efficiency.
1: It's hard to take on the break when you're stuck in Antonio Rudiger's pocket for the game as well. <laughs> I think uh, that, that's uh, that's something that, that is worth saying. And it's also worth mentioning that this wasn't really a home game for Atleti, as I mentioned. This one taking place uh, in Bucharest, thousands of miles from Madrid, so uh, they're at a disadvantage there as well. But as for the second leg, gents, an away goal changes this uh, uh, pretty. You know, mm. puts it on this puts this fixture on its head very much. Joe, do you think that uh, this is going to be a balanced second leg?
3: I think there's a chance for Atletico Madrid to come back, if that's what you mean. They absolutely have a shot still in this second leg. Yes, they're going to be playing away from home, but they've kind of already done that. And they're down that away goal, so that's a problem, right? But they absolutely have a chance. Maybe they do come in and play a little bit more aggressively in the attack. Maybe they play some more expansive soccer and say, okay, Chelsea, we're going to do our best to go toe-to-toe with you and play a little bit more like how you play instead of how we played in this first leg. If they come out and they are more attacking and it's Suarez and Felix combining a little bit more and Lamar maybe playing in central midfield like he has been in La Liga instead of out wide, yes, they absolutely still have a shot. It's just going to be a lot harder now that Giroud scored that
1: beautiful goal. He did indeed. Oh, by the way, uh, I love that Xiao Felix attempting a bicycle kick, and then Juru saying, "You know what? This is this is how you this is how you do it." By the way, uh, yeah, <laughs> that was an amusing uh, part of this game. But uh, Taylor, I think the last time that Chelsea won an away game in Spain in this competition, they won and they went and won the whole gosh darn thing. So, uh, what do mm-hmm. you think about this second second leg of this one?
2: I mean, I think we know from last season that Atleti can go on the road. They went to Liverpool and ended up with the result there. That is an extra time. And they did win the first leg of that one. So their work is cut out for them. There is precedent for them getting the result. But I I do think, like, maybe this is me doing too much of what Joe was mentioning. It probably is. But I think right now just Thomas Tuchel seems to have Chelsea humming he seems to like i don't think he's going to take his foot off the gas i don't think or i guess break maybe in the in the next leg but either way i just have i i have more confidence that he will have his team prepared and ready to go I think that they will... I think they get through this. I mean, we, you never know with Atleti and what they kind of throw at you and what Simeone tries to do. Uh, but I was surprised that with everything Atletico did to nullify Chelsea's attacking options and really even Tuchel's... Like, with the first stuff he did, it didn't work as well. Atletico were ready for it and he still made a little adjustments. Yes, it's a fortunate goal, but it's still a goal. And I just think... It'll be hard for Atleti, uh, for Atleti to have that level of defensive solidity and then still play attacking soccer at the same time. I think it's going to be a tough one for them to walk. Maybe they can do it, but I would definitely say I'm feeling more confident uh, if I'm a Chelsea fan.
1: One more thing on this game. How unfair is it that Olivier Giroud is both extremely handsome and really good at soccer? I mean, what a handy detail there.
2: <laughs> very. It's very unfair. Yeah. Unfair, I would appreciate
3: it. it. Life. Also tall. What is he, like, 7 feet tall? That's not yeah. cool. It's like yeah. seven six, I think. Yeah, 7'6", seven, seven, seven,
1: something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, we shall move on from this one. Looking delicately poised for the second leg is Atleti against Chelsea, or Chelsea against Atleti as it will be. We will look at Lazio taking on Bayern Munich after these messages.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, US-based live customer service from Discover,
4: Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to com slash courtside to learn more.
1: We are back. The other game on Tuesday was Lazio taking on Bayern Munich. And uh, Joe, I think when we looked at this in preview mode, I think we said this was the most unbalanced of the uh, fixtures we'd be looking at in this round. That one seemed to come to pass, didn't it?
3: Yeah, it did. Unfortunately for Lazio, this, this 4-1 win for Bayern Munich, Bayern were good. They were really good, but almost Lazio were more bad than Bayern were good. I don't, it's hard. It's hard to, to fall on one side or the other. I do know that Lazio's mistakes killed them in this game. I actually thought Lazio came out and had a defensive game plan. They tried to deny Bayern Munich's wingers and, and Lewandowski and Musiala. They tried to deny access to those players and really step to them and enforce them to have so little time and space when they were able to get on the ball. They didn't want them turning and running at them. They had some decent ideas Lazio did defensively, and they had some some okay looks in possession as well that Taylor kind of walked us through in his preview. But it, none of that mattered at the end of the day. Their their defensive mistakes and their sloppiness with the ball at times completely killed this game and killed it for Lazio and made you know our conversation look a lot better.
1: Would you expand on these decent defensive ideas? Because I saw, uh, you know, uh, Acherby, Masakio and Patrick not having a very good game at all. Uh, Particularly Masakio, I thought was, uh, you know, to blame for one of the goals as well. But it just seemed like that was was what particularly let them down in this game. And the whole trying to play out the back and not being very good at playing out the back. Maybe it's because it's Bayern you're playing against, of course. But uh, give me some positives from that back line, Joe.
3: If we're looking at—I mean, we can separate because you just threw a lot this direction, right? Playing out of the back, <laughs> there were sloppy moments. And playing back to the goalkeeper, that's how Lewandowski gets his goal. That's a huge mistake, right? And then uh, Reyna makes a mistake playing out of the back, and that gives Bayern a chance as well. I mean, there were sloppy moments from Lazio with the ball playing out of the back. I'm, I'm with you guys on that. Defensively, though, they had a game plan. They knew what they were trying to do to stop Bayern Munich in possession. And it's the things I just detailed. Denying Bayern Munich's forward players, their attacking midfielder, their wingers, and Lewandowski— as much space as they could. And they did an okay job of that. But the problem is that's only half the battle with Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich attack in possession and they, they're they one of the highest possession teams in the Bundesliga as they will always be. But then they also attack in transition and that's where they're best. They get a couple of goals in transition in this game. One off of a corner kick and one off of a major defensive error. An individual mistake, not a team cohesive mistake. I guess that's kind of the distinction that I'm trying to draw here. But Bayern Munich attack in transition and when they're out on the break with Coman with Sane, with Alfonso Davies. No team in Europe can stop them and certainly Lazio could not stop them in this game.
1: Yeah, it did seem that particularly by him running the flanks of this one as you say Sane was doing very well. Sula, I think I've never seen him so good uh, uh, at right back position. Re- really really impressive was he. And on the other flank with Coman and Davies as you mentioned, it seemed like they were getting absolutely run ragged down the uh, down down either flank. Taylor, do, uh, are you concurring with Joe's analysis? I think I'm pretty much on board with the fact it was individual mistakes that cost Lazio there, but do do you see any uh, any any glimpses of daylight for for Lazio going forward here?
2: Uh no, I don't. <laughs> I and I like <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I agree. I I think I am confused by Lazio in this game. I'm I'm glad that you you all both had a a clear understanding of them because I, like... It, it felt as though they, like, had forgotten a player and everybody was scrambling or something like that. Like, oh, no, we only have ten. We gotta figure it out. Like, there was just so many strange moments that I didn't quite get. Like, for example, that back three I saw being very, very tight. They had Lucas Leva sitting right in front of them. I think the, the goal was to clog up that middle, as Joe said, not give the forwards any space, really frustrate them. Except within the first couple minutes, uh, to his credit, Leroy Sana spots that That midfield three is getting very tight, but also Merosic is drifting inside as well, and he himself is very narrow. So Sane just stops. Like he basically starts standing wider, and then when the ball does go to him it has the effect of what Tuchel and Chelsea were trying to do, that when the ball goes wide to Sané and no one is near him, now everybody has to panic and slide over. And that's where I got confused of like, clearly you all see Leroy Sané, we all know he's very good, standing out there wide open. Why aren't you spreading that out a little bit more? And I understand the idea behind it, but simultaneously it feels like they were like, ha you can't get through the middle. Oh, but you can go out wide, that's fine. Like, it just, it didn't seem like there was that next part of the plan there. And I think a lot of that is exacerbated by the individual mistakes. I think if they hadn't given up that first goal with how much the ref was letting go in the first 20 minutes, there were so many moments that felt like this could easily be a yellow card and wasn't even a foul. And I think if Bayern didn't get that goal, if Lazio did make them physically uncomfortable and nullified some of what they wanted to do, maybe this game turns around. But I think the individual mistakes and then just the individual ability and awareness of some Bayern players ended up being too much.
1: Uh, this isn't the first recorded incidence of uh, Italians uh, being invaded by Germans with a uh, negative effect, but it was <laughs> Bayern looking quite brilliant in this game. It, it's, it's undeniable. Um, uh, Joe, what did you make of this Bayern Munich team? I, I think I picked out Sula there. I thought he was, had a fantastic game. Sane thought it was wonderful and on, on the flanks there. But it, it just seems like what, what? maybe we should talk about the shortcomings of this team. Does it have any shortcomings? Because if you look in, say, comparison to Man City, who were so in control there are elements of this team where I'm not convinced they're as in control. They, you know, they're coming off uh, some relatively disappointing results in the league. They, they do concede goals and they did concede a very good goal to Career in this game as well. It seems they're not quite watertight and perfect, even if they are tremendous, Joe.
3: I think the way Bayern Munich are built and the way they play is different than how Manchester City plays. And when you watch Manchester City, and we'll talk about this later on, they control the game. That is how they're built. Pep has built them to pass the heck out of the ball and to control it and to counter-press right after they lose it. Yes, they'll attack in transition, but not like Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich's best attacking method, in my opinion, is when they get out on the break in transition, when they have their wingers and when they have Alphonso Davies running right at you and you're, you're done at that point. It's over. Bayern Munich don't control games like Manchester City do. And that's not necessarily always a good thing or a bad thing, because I think Bayern want those little moments of chaos so that they can make something happen, because that's when they're at their best again, my opinion. But Bayern Munich's biggest weakness, I think, is not necessarily their inability, at least relative to Manchester City, to control a game. I do think it's their defensive work. In the preview show we did, I talked about how I think at the time they had given up the ninth... Fewest, or ninth most, I mean, Bundesliga is only 18 teams, so it really doesn't matter. Expected goals. They're a middle tier team in the Bundesliga in terms of their defensive ability, in terms of their ability to limit chances. And we saw them get carved up a little bit by Lazio in this game with that goal from Correa in the second half. Bayern is weak at times defensively. Sula is not always the most watertight defensively. Offensively, I thought he was actually quite good, like you mentioned, Ryan. But if there's one weakness for Bayern Munich, it is their ability to defend as a team, and we did see little glimpses of those vulnerabilities in this game.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I thought even like David Alaba wasn't a great advert for whoever's going to uh, be his next employer for this one. Uh, Taylor, what are you thinking about Bayern Munich? And are, are you uh, on board with Joe there?
2: Um, I think I'm a little more positive. Um, I think part of that is maybe just because I'm drinking the Bayern Kool Aid. Of uh, I did the the a 101 episode about like why Bayern have been so successful for so long, uh, which gives a lot of historical reasons. A big part of it is just the consistency and how they're playing, but also that if you go in there, it's this, like, you're going immediately into the grinder and you got to survive. You're tossed into the deep end, which is also a grinder somehow. And I think it gets the players to raise that level or know that they have to, and it's why I think they're able to to adjust to setbacks that would maybe completely derail other teams. My, my frame of reference is always Manchester United, and I go back to the season under Louis van Hall when they... Uh, lost Luke Shaw to injury, and, that, and he like credited that with like why the entire season was like could be thrown out the window because he was such an important attacking piece for Bayern. I, like, I don't know if they've ever had a healthy right back this season. They seem to just kind of put whoever they can there. But then somehow not only does it work, but they find new ways to attack. Because with Nicolas Sula, I don't think he's ever going to be accused of being fleet of foot. And yet he still does get involved, but also is a pretty rock solid defender, and it allows Leroy Sané a ton of freedom to go do what he wants. And so even in that moment of, oh, they don't have an attacking fullback, they can't really balance what they're doing, they still find ways to make it work. I think the last Lack of depth, the fact that Musiala is starting this game, well, cool, is also not a good sign for them. Yeah. So the depth could be an issue. The fatigue could certainly be an issue. And I think, to Ryan, you mentioned this, we're seeing that in on the domestic front a little bit. I don't know if that will continue over to the second leg. I still think Bayern get through this one just because Lazio seemed very confusing to me. Uh, but I agree with Joe. There are some concerns. I just don't have as large of concerns, at least uh, at present time of recording.
3: Quickly, quickly on Musiala, Ryan, if you'll let me... I, I thought he was really Fine. good in this game. I thought he was really good. And I thought he was like Thomas, Thomas Muller light, Thomas Muller Jr. almost with the way he played at that number 10, because Muller's out right now for Bayern Munich. Musiala is not the Bruno Fernandes type of number 10, but he's, he's more of a simple connector. I'm looking for space. I'm going to play a simple pass after I get it and move us forward methodically, which is a nice counterbalance. It's a nice change of pace from the literal pace that Bayern Munich have on the wings. When you have more of a connector type to play in front of Kimmich and in front of Goretzka, I think that's exactly what Bayern Munich need. And it's great. They are lacking depth. I'm totally with you on that one, Taylor. They are lacking depth in so many spots. But to have Musiala step up and connect, play, and grab that goal in this game, as such a young player, man, I thought he played really, really well.
1: Very impressive for the young... German for, for Sorry, there. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I've, I've got to think about it. It's just with Dortmund taking so many English players and making them different nationalities. You know, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. Um, uh, but yeah, 86% uh, pass success from Mazzala in this game. And of course, a very good goal from outside the box as well. Anything else to say about this game before we move on? I'm assuming we're, we're booking this one as a done deal for the second leg, Joe.
3: Yeah. This one's over. Bayern Munich have this one in the bag and they're going to keep going and continue to be dangerous in this competition. Taylor? Concur.
1: Concur, (laughs) indeed. All right, why don't we move on to Borussia Mönchengladbach, who took on Manchester City. We will do so right after this very, very short break.
2: This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham.
1: All right, another game from Budapest, definitely not Bucharest, took place on Wednesday. Borussia Mönchengladbach uh, losing 2-0 to Manchester City, uh, a game in which both keepers didn't have an awful lot to do, particularly not um, Edison, who I think only had to make a save in like injury time in the, in the dying seconds of this game. But Manchester City, as we alluded to earlier on, uh, are very much in control of all things. This is their 19th uh, consecutive win in all competitions. Also their 12th consecutive away win in all competitions, which is a record for an English team uh let's uh, we, we can leave behind the dodgy uh coats that, that managers were wearing and whatever but what, well, why don't we start off with Gladbach who didn't offer very much it was quite disappointing uh, the, the weapons that they have you you, you know uh, your two rams and those kind of players didn't offer an awful lot but it was it was for me Joe it was the midfield who just seemed unable to string a pass together in this game
3: this game's so hard for Munch and Gladbach from from losing Marco Rosa to Borussia Dortmund, or, you know they're going to lose it, you wonder how does that affect a team? And I'm actually curious if you guys have thoughts on that when I'm done here, in just a second. I wonder, you know, you're playing and you're a Mönchengladbach midfielder or whatever, and you're in this team and you know your coach is leaving in a few months. Like, how does that affect your performance? So that does that affect team morale? It's got to, right? And so that's that's the overhanging cloud that's that's up in the sky for this game. It's a dark cloud for Mönchengladbach, and then. They just didn't have a lot in this game. They were playing against the ball. They tried to build out of the back at times. I think City largely smothered that with their 4-4-2 press against Mönchengladbach's 4-3-3 possession. And then when Mönchengladbach did get the ball after defending deep, because that's what they spent most of their time doing in this game, City smothered them with their counter pressure. And Mönchengladbach got out occasionally. But again, this game, like the Chelsea-Atletico Madrid game, is a great advertisement for why you counter press. for why... Coaches tell their teams, go hunt the ball after you lose it, because if you're Chelsea trapping Atletico Madrid back, or if you're Manchester City trapping Borussia Gladback back, you are only maximizing your attacking output and making life more miserable for Gladbach or for Madrid, Atletico Madrid. So City, I thought, were great in this game. Gladback I know that's who you asked me about, Ryan, were, were pretty blah. They were pretty milk-toasty, and I don't know that that's necessarily their fault. I think City are just probably that good right now.
1: Yeah, I think I'd, I concur with that, Taylor. They got, they got a bad matchup in this one, did they not? And, um, yeah, a very disappointing performance from them all round. Uh, also, this game, Taylor, I don't know if you agree with me, because of the way that Manche- Manchester City smothered them and had so much control, it was actually quite a boring game because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was excited to
2: watch, uh, Gladbach because they have, a, a few different, like, exciting names that I, I wouldn't say I watch with the regularity I would like. So this felt like an opportunity to see, like, what can uh, Dennis Zachariah do? Is Christoph Kramer still good? <laughs> like, uh, Playa, I think, is very fun. Yeah, those that's kind of the answer. Um But I think what I, like like slowly realized from playing FIFA number one, but also from watching this team is that they're not a particularly fast team. I wouldn't say they have many people on that team that I think of as being blazing quick. And there are some that I think are the opposite of that. So then when you're playing a team like Man City, who are going to press you, I think you have to be technically pretty much perfect. You have to keep the ball moving. You can't cough it up cheaply. You can't get caught in possession. You have to use the ball to your advantage. Otherwise, you're going to have to bunker. And I don't really think Gladbach played quickly. I don't think they played technically well. And I don't think they bunkered defensively either, which kind of explains, Ryan, to your point, why City were just sort of dominant from start to finish.
1: This is a, this is a gladback team, no, Taylor, who they got a 6-0 against Shakhtar, followed by a 4-0 against, yeah. uh, uh, against Shakhtar I want to get a 10-0, uh, deficit, uh, over Shakhtar, who are obviously a, a Manchester City's favourites to play in this competition, incidentally. But, uh, I, I just expected maybe a little more punch from them.
2: Yeah, I mean, but I think that's against Shakhtar, right? But then in their other games in the group stage, I think they like start slow, win some draw. So, like, it's, I don't recall it being the most, like, consistent. They're scoring a ton of goals every single game. So, I think you I agree with you, Ryan, that I thought there might be some confusing moments here. I thought they might throw in some wrinkles and cause some problems. We've seen them do that in the past, I think, to Man City, but also to other teams in the Champions League. I don't think we did see that. I mean, certainly we didn't because they lose 2-0. But I also am kind of confused about this one just because to Joe's question, like I have played in teams where the coach was leaving, either retiring or going to another club or what it might be. And it it's sort of, if anything, is either a thing you don't think about, because it's just like, yeah, I'm focused on the game. It doesn't really matter. We're here right now. We're playing. I think to, like, to fans, it's a bigger deal to be losing your manager than the player. And then if anything, it has, it at times, like motivated the team because it was like, this is our last hurrah. This is our last chance to make something happen before maybe we move on. And there's like a freeing aspect of that. Like managers leaving. This might be my last chance with Gladbach. Then I'm going to go off to probably Bayern Munich. Uh, and so I think that... They didn't look very confident. They looked sort of overwhelmed at times, maybe by the moment, maybe by Man City, because Man City can do that. But I was surprised by the lack of fight and the lack of ability to pull something back in this one from Gladbach.
1: So the uh, the point of um, the manager leaving, maybe it's what those poor club de foot players have been going through in Montreal. Uh, at the moment, with the Thiago oh, yeah. departure, of course. So we will we'll find out more mm-hmm. about that uh, as that news unfolds. Uh, Joe, Manchester City were rather good in this game, and I think it's it, the point being that they did control it very well. And I think they made the point earlier. I, I feel like they control games in a way that Bayern can't. That you know they've got more midfield structure, less likely to concede a goal ever. Um, it was just very, very impressive all round. And Cancelo the one who's been getting the headlines here. Uh, I liked to Gary Linker's tweet of uh, Cancelo culture. Kevin De Bruyne being a victim of Cancelo culture, it seems at the moment. he's He seems to be the best fullback who doesn't actually spend most of his time being a fullback.
3: Check. Oh, 100%. We've seen him at right back. Well, in air quotes, right right back for Manchester City a lot this season. Him stepping inside into midfield and playing next to Rodri or playing next to Rodri. And Gunduan or whoever in that midfield. And then now recently for Manchester City, it's been Cancelo at left back. But again, left back in air quotes. He pushed inside in this game. City started personnel-wise in kind of a 4-3-3 shape, but offensively, man, it was so fluid. I think the best way I can describe it is as a 3-2-5 with Cancelo next to Rodri and then Kyle Walker becomes that right center back. But man, that wasn't even true all the time. Sometimes Rodri would drop in between the center backs and form that back three. Sometimes it was it was Gundogan who would move left and play in that left back hole that Cancelo left behind when he moved into midfield. Sometimes Ederson would step up and become part of that back line as well for distribution, especially early on in this game. But man, regardless of what the shape was, Joao Cancelo was a massive player. He has an assist on one goal, and he has the the pass before the pass, the MLS assist. On the second goal, there we go for Manchester City on brand. Thank you. I do try. I do try to stay in my own lane in that regard. But it's Cancelo stepping inside, and he he plays that role so well. He's right footed, so he's cutting in and almost playing that Kevin De Bruyne cross. Actually, that's a horrible description. Never mind. That's not at all what De Bruyne's thing is. I had my wrong foot, the wrong foot in my head. But he steps inside and plays that bending ball, that in swinging ball from the left half space when he comes into midfield. And he plays that ball perfectly. He's so technical, you'd be forgiven for thinking he is just a straight-up midfielder or that he is an attacking-minded number 10 or whatever it is because he's so effective as that all-around fullback midfielder kind of player.
1: Yeah, very impressive very, very interesting in in Pep's new evolution of his system, Taylor. Where I believe one of the central tenets is now to have Cancelo just to put diagonal balls to the uh, to the far post yeah. for one of the shortest players to head the ball in. That seems to be what they do <laughs> now. Is that is that it's, a thing? It's, now,
2: what, it's what it's what we all knew was going to happen. I mean, this is the Pep Guardiola who got Lionel Messi to score a headed goal in the Champions League final, so maybe that's just <laughs> something that he's good at. Uh, João Cancelo is a player. Not since Antonio Valencia have I seen somebody who hates their left foot as much as oh, João yeah. Cancelo. <laughs> uh, he goes for the Travella against Arsenal when he probably could have used his left foot and just even if he scuffs it, he probably puts it in the back of the net. But in this one, that right foot was just so beautiful because that ball that Joe was describing, it's the type of, I, I'm struggling to think of an analogy for this, but it's like when he hits it. I was just like, if you paused it there, I was like, oh, my God, this is terrible. Like, that's going way out of bounds. There's nobody even there. What is he aiming at? And then pause it again halfway through, and it's like, wait a minute. (laughs) There is a lot of bend on that ball, and it's holding up. And then as you see it dropping down and you realize what's happening, it's just, it's the type of goal when you can tell it's happening and you can be like, oh, there's going to be a goal here. Like, two seconds before it happens it's the most fun type of goal because then you can experience like the emotion of it but you're also experiencing it in the present moment and that was one of those where it's just like oh I know what's going to happen here it's going to be a goal it's going to be awesome that's exactly what happened and it was
1: and we're also experiencing the emotion of having Sergio Aguero take minutes in this game as well which is uh, something that Manchester City fans are uh, uh, likely very happy about it just seems like they, they've got all departments covered maybe maybe not completely that uh, central striker role at the moment but although you know Il- Ilkay Maradona seems to be handling that in many games uh, <laughs> <laughs> on his own uh, but uh, it, it just seems like every player knows their role every player's got quality on the ball they've got this really good system there's no weak links in this Manchester City team at the moment they just seem quite unstoppable it is, it, it's it shades of 2017-18 once again is it not
3: Joe? It 100% is I love how you brought out the fact that there are no weak links in in, in this team and you mentioned Guduan as well in this game I thought just to throw in one tactical note here before I shut up and let you guys talk I noticed Zakaria being used to keep a close eye on Gundogan on the right side of Gladbach's midfield. Zakaria is that right-sided central midfielder, and Gundogan was either playing wide left or more often in that left channel, kind of on that side for Manchester City in possession. Zakaria was was shadowing Gundogan, where if you would drop deeper, Zakaria would run with him and almost join up with the back line at times, and he always knew where Gundogan was. And that makes sense, right? That's a smart game plan, I think, from Marco Rosa because he knows how important Gundogan has been for Manchester City recently. He's been on a tear in 2021. He's been the hottest player in any league in Europe right now. But limiting that damage from Gladbach and, and them using their central midfielder on that right side to track Gundogan left space open for Cancelo. It left opportunities for one of the other hottest players in Europe right now to create chances. And I think that's an example, that's, that's uh, a microcosm of how dangerous Manchester City are. If you devote too many resources to one player or to stopping one player, they have 10 other guys on the field who can burn you. Manchester City right now are so hot and they are playing some of the best soccer we've seen from them in quite some time.
1: Yeah, and Pep has overtaken Sir Alex Ferguson as as the manager having the most uh, knockout game wins in this competition. I believe it's 27 is the number that Pep has reached now. Very, very impressive indeed. Indeed. It makes it all the more impressive that they'll probably get knocked out in the quarterfinals of this competition. Um, (laughs) Taylor, uh, I'm being slightly facetious there, but uh, I I think Man City have been the favourites in this competition for the past three seasons, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Do you see anything stopping them right now?
2: No, I mean, I think there's... Uh I think I would say the short list of teams that I, I think could be in the semifinals if the draws all work out would be Liverpool, PSG, Bayern, and Man City. I do think potentially any of those teams could win it. It does seem like of the four that I listed there, if you factor in history, injury concerns, like current runs of form, it does feel like City have the strongest argument, the strongest case, and it is the thing that I think Pep Guardiola would most like to win, especially with them seemingly running away with the title in the Premier League. So yeah, I think I think this is their title to lose, uh, which is always a very dangerous position to be in when it comes to the Champions League, and when it comes to any knockout round game in general. But yeah, I think they have the depth and consistency across the board to make that happen. Is the quote I saw from Pep
3: about money spent real or was that a joke? Did anybody see that?
1: Refresh me on that one. I saw it,
3: Joe. Do you know yeah, what I'm talking I saw about? it? And I kind of assumed it was real. Maybe that was a bad call in my bar.
2: I don't know. I can't tell if it was a joke or not. But I, I, the gist of it, as I read it, was that somebody said, "Like, what's the key to winning?" And he was like, "Being able to buy good players." <laughs> like, basically, it was like, "We can spend the money to make this happen," which. I think is an allegation that's been thrown at him in the past that he resisted. So I don't know if that was a real comment, if that was like him throwing shade at people who've made that uh, allegation, or if that was him just genuinely stating a fact. But it is the case that they've spent a lot of money, they've built a very good team, and that very good team is, I would say, the favorite to win the Champions League now.
1: Well, when you go out dressed like you're taking the trash cans to the curb for a professional outing, then uh, you can afford to flex in that manner, I imagine. Uh, this is true. <laughs> and One thing, uh, this, I mentioned Sir Alex Ferguson, it was actually 28 games at Pep's got- to, uh, with knockout wins rather than 27 uh, overtaking Sir Alex and I think this is for you, uh, focus on what you, you say it it doesn't you matter know. what you do <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do in, um, <laughs> in December in winter time it's what you do in spring and that's probably been the city downpour, particularly in this competition, isn't it? So we will see how they handle this. And maybe uh, the, the club's history and whatnot will, uh, uh, will play into it. Um, mm-hmm. If we're going to talk about witches, curses and voodoo uh, as they do on certain <laughs> other soccer podcasts. Uh, any more to say on this game, Gents? Joe, anything else on this one? I don't, I don't think so. Manchester City
3: are dominant right now and I expect them to continue to be dominant, certainly in the second leg and probably
1: beyond that in this tournament. Tay, Tay. Uh, I
2: wouldn't want to talk wishes curses if that's cool. <laughs> I
1: mean, we can, we can, we uh, can, we can expand on that a little bit. But I, I, you know, there's this feeling that because you haven't done something previously and it was a different set of players, then therefore this set of players will be haunted yeah. by that. It's the kind of preconception that many fans have, but I don't know how true it is. Maybe, maybe it's yeah. I,
2: the, the whole like they lost this fixture three seasons ago. Will they want revenge? It's like no, half the team wasn't there. Yeah. They don't know what you're talking about. Like they're they're playing FIFA, they're playing video games. They're not focused on a result three years ago. That is the domain of Pep Guardiola, who definitely is.
1: There we go. It's the kind of thing that haunts the players' minds, uh, the, the fans' minds, and not the players' minds. Yep. I would contend. One more game for us to cover, gentlemen. Uh, Atalanta against Real Madrid. This one finished one 0 to Madrid. No Ramos, no problem, baby. With uh, a Mondi. Do we say Mondi or Mendy mm-hmm. for, Mon- for, for him? I don't, I'm not sure anymore. Anyway, he saved uh, he saved Real Madrid's butts in this one. Uh, but Mondi? Ra- Real Madrid were I like that <laughs> were missing several other starters too, along with Ramos with Carvajal and, uh, and Benzema up top. Isco leading the line. In this one, Joe, what do we make of this one? It seems like there's lots to say, um particularly about Atalanta. Should we start there with atalanta perhaps um i 'll read you a quote from um, it's Christian Romero, who said "Our idea is to attack for ninety minutes and he said that the the, the day before the match. This is from sidlow's um uh, match report on the guardian hes and instead they went. Uh, Down to 10 men early with that red card, and they found themselves defending for most of the game. So maybe their plan to go out and attack was thwarted reasonably early on, Joe.
3: It was, and it made this game, it it changed this game and made it a lot less open and kind of along with that a lot less fun. I think, not that I didn't enjoy watching this game, but it's harder when one team is down a man, they're naturally going to sit deeper and force the other team to try to break them down, and that's what Atalanta did. They start out in this game in a 3 4 1 2 shape. And then it's the red card on Froiler, 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 Froiler,
1: yeah, we going with
3: that one. Froiler, Froiler. Froiler.
1: It's, it's hyphenated.
3: And that red card was a beautifully worked sequence of possession by Real Madrid, first of all, to give credit to them, because Isco dropped in, they had a center back follow him, which then created space for Mondi to run into, and it was it was beautiful, it was gorgeous. Was it a red card, was it not? I don't know, I'll leave that for you guys to argue about, but... In this game, Atalanta started out and they were willing to be more aggressive and willing to leave those spaces a little bit more open because that's how they want to play. They want to play aggressively, offensively and defensively. They really want to attack in every phase of the game. Even when they don't have the ball, they want to attack you. After the red card, things changed a little bit. Atalanta dropped their line of confrontation. They were still willing to press Madrid in the first half, but but it didn't happen as much as it did naturally at the beginning of the game. And then in the second half, Man, they dropped their line a lot. For most of the second half, I thought Atalanta's defensive line, their, their line of confrontation, I should say, was in their own defensive third. They wanted, they wanted Madrid to come and meet them there. They were not willing to step out anymore. And so in some ways, I think the red card on Freuler made life harder for Atalanta. Yes, because they go down a man, it's harder for them to attack, but it also made life a lot harder on Real Madrid. I think Madrid was going to yep. have infinitely more success breaking down Atalanta in open play when it was 11 v 11 and more open. But man, when they lose Froiler, the game changes and Madrid are are pretty fortunate to get a goal off of the the aftermath of a set piece.
2: I agree with Joe. I just wanted to emphasize that like it is the common idea that when a player loses a man to a red card or any player to a red card, like you automatically have the advantage and you do because eventually the, the team is going to get more tired. They've got to cover more ground, but it can be really confusing at the same time because if you've been drilled for I am need to be here at this time to mark this player who's going to be doing this and you're kind of practice what they're going to be doing and then they're down a player and they kind of are already Atalanta who are going to do different things and now they're doing even more different things because they have to kind of improvise. I think it explains a lot of why, especially in the first half, Madrid really did sort of seem confused about what they were trying to do with the ball. But sometimes it was an individual. Sometimes it was quick passes through the middle. Sometimes I saw Asensio and uh, Vinicius Jr. both spreading very wide and like vacating the, fr- the the front space and then Isco would maybe take it, but he didn't have much around him. And I think they did kind of struggle at first to deal with a shorthanded Atalanta. I think to Joe's point, then when the Italian side started to sit in and be a little bit deeper, I think they conceded possession and let Madrid get a bit more comfortable.
1: Well, Taylor, Gasparini certainly felt that the red card put them at a disadvantage. He said after the yeah. game, this red card ruined the match. Those who don't distinguish between a tackle and a foul should change jobs. Ooh. I won't say anything. Otherwise, UEFA will keep me out for two months uh, <laughs> and basically says we'll go to Madrid to win, which is the, uh, so yep. that, that part's the right attitude. But there, there was some controversy over the red card itself in as whether it should have even been one. It could have been a yellow card. But for me, Taylor, that was the last man committing a textbook yep. professional foul, right?
2: Yep, I, I agree. I think like I understand why. Fans of both sides would be frustrated by this. Neutrals would be frustrated because as soon as that happened, it did feel like, oh, this game's going to be. I, I kind of thought I wrote down in my notes that my expectation was that it would be boring because Atalanta strike me as the type of team who think a nil nil draw at home is an ideal result because then you get one goal on the road. You're golden Madrid with the injuries. I think they weren't inclined to like, really try to do too much in this one, and so it felt like it was going to be nil-nil. Then that red card really did seem like it killed off a lot of the nuance. So I understand why people are frustrated, but maybe it's devil's advocate. I think I kind of believe this. I think it is probably justified, because going back to when they changed the Dogso rules to make it that you're not, if you... Do commit a foul in the box. You're not getting a red card and conceding a penalty. I believe that the corresponding guidance on how to enforce that was to be harsher about those fouls outside of the box. And I think for the official in this one, if you're looking at that from the angle he was, that looks for all the world like Freuler is desperately trying to make that play before they get into the box. I'm not saying he was, but it absolutely looks to your point, Ryan, like he is trying to make a professional foul outside of the box so you don't concede a penalty. I'm not saying that's what he was doing, but if that's what your perspective is on it, you're going to automatically see that as, oh, you don't want to concede a penalty, which means you're conceding a red card. And so I think that was the mindset. I think that's why it was so automatic for the official.
1: I think we've seen yellows given for that kind of thing before, but I don't think you can have any argument, essentially, with the with the outcome there. One curious thing about Atalanta Tate, which I know you mentioned before we came on it, was uh, Joseph Ilicic, who came on. Yep. In the 56th minute, and then suffered the ultimate indignity of being substituted once again before time. What went on there?
2: Yeah, I was, uh, I was not. So happy with some of the things that happened with Atalanta in this one. Uh, I will say uh, to Madrid fan, or no, to Atalanta fans who feel frustrated, I wouldn't say you should be by the penalty. Maybe by the Casemiro dive that should have been booked and instead got a like stern talking to that would have been his second yellow. But either way, um, in this game, first of all, I will I will get to the question you asked, Ryan. But I want to say I had hyped up Palomino. I thought he was going to be a really important player for Atalanta's defense. He doesn't start. He does play, and I was like, there we go. You bring him in. He gets the job done. He. Comes on the 85th minute, they conceded in the 86th. So, if anything, that felt like even more of a personal slight to me. But nothing will be as bad as the situation with Joseph Ilicic, excuse me, which you mentioned. Comes on, comes off. Uh, I looked at his stats. The stats themselves are not that bad. I will give them to you now. 6.1 rating on FootBob. Make of that what you will. 80% pass completion, 4 for, t- 4 for 10 duels. That's a big one. 2 for 4 dribbles. He was dispossessed once. But uh, apparently uh, Gasparini could be heard on the sidelines screaming, stop complaining and find something to do, was giving him specific instructions on how not to concede possession, how not to give the ball away, how to do a better job holding up. And all of those instructions were more or less completely disregarded. And I think to some extent there is some blame for Gasparini because Ilicic is not fleet of foot. He's not a high-intensity pressing runner. He's not going to track people. He's really good with the ball at his feet. He's really good at going at defenses. But in this case, I don't think he was put in the strongest of positions. Uh, so that maybe explains part of it. The other thing, uh, journalist uh, Siavush Falahi, who's a journalist for Eurosport, tweeted this a couple months ago and then had a follow-up yesterday. Here's the one from a few months ago. At Atalanta, when Papu Gomez got subbed off at halftime against Michelin, he's said to have gotten into a fight with Gasparini. Uh, Papu Gomez now obviously no longer with the club. Illegit defended Gomez and Gasparini resigned after the game. The club did not accept the resignation, so Gasparini is still there. As for Gasparini, it's only Papu and Ilicic who are done with him. There seems to be many players who are tired of him. The talk is that Gasparini could leave in January or July. And then you fast forward to yesterday, and it seems like maybe this was part of that, that he, they're already not on the best terms. Ilicic goes in, and maybe if you're Gasparini, you feel like, oh, he's not even trying. He's not even caring. He's already mentally checked out. I'm subbing him out. I don't want this guy in here anymore. I will be fascinated as to how much Ilicic gets used in the ne- next couple weeks. I think that will give us a good insight into how severe this rift is going to be. But this is also uh, Ilicic who had depression issues last season, who missed time to deal with those issues. So, again, it's it's a tricky situation. It's a fragile situation for many different people involved uh, in this team.
1: Uh, it's very interesting. It was obviously Gasparino sending a statement there to just to send it to, to take him off with like four minutes to go, and to maybe it blowing up in his face as you mentioned with the goal coming not that long afterwards. A very good strike it was from Philon Mondi, who was in full Roberto Carlos mode for this one. Joe, um, I I contend that Real Madrid did have um, uh, some some absences in this team, but. They had the midfield of Tony Kroos, Casemiro and Modric. I think you could pay a bunch of children around those three, as long as those three are there. Real Madrid win. Do you agree? I'm being over the top, of course. But it's important that those three are there in that team, is it not? And Taylor is right to mention the second yellow card, which Casimir very much deserved. His puppy dog eyes must be second to none to be able to get away <laughs> with always avoiding that second yellow. But Real Madrid and their midfield engine getting it done once again, Jack.
3: Madrid's midfield is so important to them. It is critical to how they play in this game, especially when Atalanta are back deep, defending in their defensive third all throughout the second half. You need players who can do some things with the ball. You need players who can make some things happen. And for Madrid, their best passers and even their best ball progressor in the form of Luka Modric, it's in the midfield. Tony Kroos dropped deep so much in this game to get on the ball and play quarterback. He just moved in between the center backs or moved deep to get on the ball and, and Nacho and uh Varane split wide and... Cross got on the ball and sprayed passes and he did that over and over again. The weird thing though is it didn't matter in this game. Madrid were not having much of any success breaking Atalanta down. I don't think that's on Cross. I don't think that's on Modric or Casemiro. I don't think that's on any one Madrid player. I thought Atalanta just defended so well. They were down to 10 men and they moved so effectively and efficiently. They marked their men in the right moments. They passed players off in that man-oriented defensive system. Madrid were just having no success breaking them down. So in 99 games out of 100, Ryan, if if Madrid's midfield is on, I think they have a great chance to win. In this game, I just almost don't think that connection was there. I don't think it had any effect on the game because of the fact that Madrid just weren't having any luck breaking Atalanta down one way or the other. And that goes back to the red card. The red card made life more difficult for Atalanta in an attacking sense. And it also made life more difficult for Real Madrid in an attacking sense because there was no space. They had no opportunity for Kroos or for Modric to spray passes and really get into dangerous positions. They could pass all day, but could they pass and find a through ball in the box? Could they pass and find a player out wide, draw Atalanta out to that wing, and then play it into the box and create chances there? No, they couldn't. And so then it comes back to soccer just being such an incredibly random and at times harsh sport. Atalanta go down a man, they defend really, really well, and then you give up a goal in the aftermath of a set piece and that changes the game. Real Madrid get that away goal and now they have a chance to play at home and potentially have more chances for Kroos and for Modric to impact the game. Although honestly, I'll be, I'll be surprised if a ton changes in that second leg, but yeah. ideally Atalanta will be more expansive and more willing to step forward, which would then give Kroos and Modric more chances to get on the ball and make things happen. Well, this is where I this is where
2: I jump in to point out that I believe Casemiro is suspended for that second leg due to yellow card accumulation. Yes, so yes. that will be a big wrinkle in how Zinedine Zidane approaches that game. If he tries to have somebody just go in and do a like for like job, if he changes up the shape, I think that will be very much worth keeping an eye on because I don't know how you deal with uh, the lack of Casemiro, who I think is the other fundamental part of that midfield. Uh, and another reason why I'm happy that I'm not Zinedine Zidane and he gets to figure that out one instead of me.
1: Exactly. That was exactly the point I was going to make, Tate, because he is, he's, he's Zidane's favorite, basically, isn't he, Casimir? I think it, it, that, that is abundantly clear. Um, I think Guillaume, Guillaume on the CBS coverage was saying how things changed in the second half of this game where, uh, Madrid stopped running and they were laying the ball, comes to them a little bit. I thought that was quite interesting. It did, it did seem like the second half was, a, was a different kind of pace, uh, to, to me. Um, yeah, it's it's just, but Real Madrid still got the job done here. I still can maintain the fact that if Tony Crows has a good game, Real Madrid don't lose. That's still my that's still my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, but this one's still very open for the second leg. I would say very Atalanta's still very much in this one, uh, particularly with that Casemiro's and with um, any other potential absences that might there might be with Real Madrid. Taylor, you, are you with me on that one? This this one's still pretty wide open, right?
2: I think so. I think it depends a lot on who gets back to full fitness for Madrid. If they have Benzema back, which I think is the expectation. If they have, uh, Valverde back, I think that's the other one that they're expected to get back in time for the game. Like, I could see him playing in midfield. Not the same player as Casemiro, certainly. They do different things. But I think Benzema is such a fundamentally important part of that team and, and does So many little things and does so many big things very well. It's the same thing as Lewandowski with Bayern for me, that like he just finds ways to score goals that you don't expect him to do, but he ends up doing. It's why Tony Cruz, the the much memed clip of him being asked who would he rather play balls into, Holland or Mbappe, and his answer with Benzema. I think that was a genuine answer and not just a good PR answer.
1: Yeah, definitely. And by the way, a a stat that surprised me from this one, uh, Real Madrid had 19 shots to Atalanta's two. I didn't think it was quite that heavy uh, in in favor of Real Madrid, having watched it, but there you go. uh, That's that's what the numbers say. Uh, Joe, anything more on this one for the second leg? It it feels like if if there's 11 versus 11, those shot stats might fall more (laughs) heavily in Real Madrid's favor, perhaps.
3: This game feels like it could go either way in the second leg. I think this tie is still open. It's just as open as Atletico Madrid versus Chelsea. Lazio and Bayern and Gladbeck and Manchester City. I think those ones are, are done and Bayern and Man City will go on to the next round. But Atalanta has a chance to come back and score a couple goals. Maybe they keep a clean sheet. I maybe Maybe they don't with how they play defensively. When they have 11 players, at least they can be pulled apart. But I think the second leg could be a lot more open and more exciting. And that means it's anybody's game
1: does indeed. Well we're going to have to wait until March, not that long actually, it's the 9th of March when the next uh, re- uh, the second legs of these t- uh, matches will uh, will grace us with their presence. Gentlemen, I think we've done a-, a a smashing job of the review here if I don't say so myself. Anything more from you Joe before we head off into the sunset?
3: not for me but thank you for giving us all a pat on on the back i appreciate that
1: i like, i think it's important to uh, give yourself positive <laughs> reinforcement now and then that's why i like to end the show saying we were good even though the listener may or may not agree that's up to them <laughs> taylor anything more from you sir
2: no i think you hit the nail on the head i think we're good
1: <laughs> wonderful gents thank you listeners we'll be back soon